Brian Martin Burkholder, university chaplain, and um, along with Peter Dulap, assistant, associate, assistant, which is it? Professor of Bible, religion, theology, and I, I don't live in the academic realm, so I just made a big mistake there by not knowing something. He's a teacher, he teaches Bible and stuff. Anyway, uh, we're, we're really pleased to, to introduce you to Melissa Flora Bixler. Um, Peter and others are, have been friends and appreciate, appreciative of uh, Melissa's work and along with me as, as well. And so the invitation started there and very quickly uh, we saw we wanted this to be a series. We are um, also sending this uh, out to those who are connected through the Facebook Live EMU Facebook page, and we're glad that you're with us as well. We're delighted to be hosting Melissa Flora Bixler on campus today and tomorrow morning, teaching from her newest book. This is the book, How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger, and the Work of Peace. If you're interested in, in purchasing this book, we have little handbills outside the doors that have a QR code, and you can get very quickly to a place where the book's available. In this book, um, she looks closely at what the Bible says about enemies, who they are, what they do, how Jesus and his followers responded to them. Melissa Flora Bixler is a writer and pastor with degrees from Duke University and Princeton Theological Seminary. Her ministry at Raleigh Mennonite Church has been featured in The Atlantic and Sojourners. She writes for G's Magazine, Christian Century, Mennonite World Review, and The Mennonite, among others. And she lives with her husband and three children in Raleigh, North Carolina. Melissa opened this three-part series earlier today in the chapel gathering with an address entitled, Without Discerning the Body, and completes the series tomorrow morning in campus worship. It's in Lehman Auditorium at 1010 with a presentation entitled, Jesus is Nice and Other Lies I Learned in Church. I'm intrigued. And for this evening lecture, she'll focus on, is polarization the problem? New imagination for times of conflict. So following the lecture, Professor Dula will um, facilitate an opportunity for responding. So you know, be jotting down thoughts, questions, and ready to engage in some conversation. Thank you very much. Let's welcome Melissa to Harrisonburg, to EMU. Uh, good to see some friends here tonight, um, and thanks for having me. Um, I have uh, been thinking about polarization a lot because I've been told I am supposed to be thinking about that. Um, and I don't know if you have also found yourself in that position. Over the six past six years, in particular, I've been told that divisions in our churches and our society have reached this real boiling point, and we need to do something to heal this divided world that we live in. Um, and so I, I have been told that that is the problem, um, but I'm, I'm just a curious person, so I wondered if it was actually true. Um, and so I um, had the opportunity to um, lecture someplace else, and so that gave me an opportunity to begin the research um, into this question of polarization. Um, what is it um, actually? Like, what's the thing we're talking about? Um, and 
how real is that narrative on the ground and how much does it even matter in, uh, if, we're, if we keep getting told that polarization is the problem of our day, um, does it just become uh, the problem? Um, and so I, I wanted to start with uh, just, I think, a, a, a common narrative that we're, that we're told that I think there's parts that are true to it. There's a couple different kinds of polarization. One is sort of um, ideological polarization, um, that somehow something has shifted in the United States that we are getting further and further apart ideologically. What we value, what we believe, what our dreams are, what are the things that we think are good in the world, there's just the shift that's happening that's pushing people to two poles, right? So polarization isn't just a lot of different opinions, it's like pushing you apart. Um, and ideological polarization can overlap with or sort of intersect with political polarization. Uh, political polarization that increasingly we're aligning between two political parties um, that uh, tend to get more and more liberal or conservative. Um, and that means we, we refuse to hear one another. Um, we attach our identities to political parties. And as a result of that, we get these more extreme candidates on both sides and more political impasse. Does that sound familiar? Does that kind of, yeah? Just, if you're hearing something else, that's all right too. No. Um, just from you all, what would you say, uh, you just call them out, the most polarizing issues in the United States today? What was that? Abortion, okay. Any others? Vaccines. Vaccines, okay. Immigration. Immigration. Gun control. Gun control. Individual freedom and common good. Individual freedom or common good feel like pretty distinct ideas that people are kind of camping out in these days. I um, hope you all enjoy um, my sort of uh, fifth grade level PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> I am a pastor, I don't do PowerPoint, so I just want to draw your attention to this lovely graphic that I made all by myself. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I have a quiz for you. Just to take a moment um, and think about abortion, which is the first thing I heard. Um, I think for good reason, and especially in this moment, for you to think for a minute about how you think opinions about abortion have changed with the general populace since 1975. Let's take a minute. Anyone want to take a guess? How, has, how have our opinions on abortion changed from 1975? Anyone want to venture? Just one or two people? That's okay, you don't need it. I'll just tell you. Um, here it is, here's a chart about um, general population ideas about abortion. Um, at the top, you see uh, legal under, uh, only under certain circumstances. 
um, there's two lines that sort of cross. The one um, that sort of dips down at the bottom there is illegal in all circumstances, and the middle one is illegal is legal under any circumstance. Not a lot of change um, for the general population between 1975 and the present, um, which may surprise you based on how the rhetoric around abortion, how what we're hearing about um, the push that this is the big issue that's pushing people um, to vote in federal elections um, is, is pa court packing, like all of this may be surprising, it's a little surprising to me, to see how basically our opinions about abortion ideologically have not shifted much since 1975 as a general population. So the first time I realized it felt like something was up with this polarization conversation was when I heard some new coverage about the Green New Deal, which is socialist propaganda on the far edge of reason that the radical left is going to enact on this country. And then I read the Green New Deal, and it said things like this. meeting 100% of the power demand in the United States through clean, renewable, and zero emission energy sources. Upgrading all existing buildings in the United States and building new buildings to achieve maximal energy efficiency. Spurring massive growth in clean manufacturing as is technologically feasible. This does not sound like leftist propaganda to me um, as a leftist. Um, so, and it turned out that 61% of all voters, when they actually read individually what was in the Green New Deal, felt like this was a really good thing. Um, calling it the Green New Deal kind of brought that down, but even not, not significantly. Um, but that 61% includes all Democrats, a majority of independents, and over one-third of Republicans. That does not sound like a radical fringe to me. So that was where I began to think like something else is going on besides what I think that we imagine to be something called ideological polarization. That sort of we're moving apart from one another in terms of what we long for in the world. Um, and this, is, um, this continues to be replicated in a lot of the studies that have been done. Um, even you may be thinking like, well, in 2016, things must have fallen apart ideologically. And actually, we can, the, most of the, the data that we have suggests otherwise, that we continue to see in, like, in this Gallup poll um, that people's ideological positions um, are in sometimes moving closer to one another as, these, as the years go on. The person who's really done the most um, study on this is Morris Fiorina uh, from Stanford University um, and I'll just share you with his conclusion about the data that he studied. He kind of came to this conclusion that polarization actually happens most among the political deciders of our day. Um, and that has gotten more extreme as time goes on. This means that party polit politicians and issue activists become more polarized. Um, and more party line voting and less willingness to work with other parties is sort of the result of that. Um, that accounts for about 10% of the population. 
Um, that 10% definitely has, um, is what we would, I think, consider like a, a typical polarization narrative. Um, there's exaggerated ideas about the other party. Um, but that group, that 10%, actually shapes the political conversation for the other 90% of the country. It isn't completely even um, in, in, in Fiorina's work. Um, Republicans do contribute more to pol the polarization of party elites because of large donors and PACs um, than Democrats, but it happens either way. I think one of the pieces, though, that, um, that Fiorina doesn't pay as much attention to is that even though we see independents are growing as the largest, demogra largest demographic of voters, um, people are still voting um, along, the, along party lines. Um, it's not that independents are doing mixed tickets, um, some Democrats, some Republicans. They're still straight ticket voting. Um, they just no longer want to affiliate with parties. Um, so I think it's, I, when we hear this data, I think it's important to remember that doesn't necessarily mean that more people are voting in a sort of what we would consider an independent manner. People are still voting um, consistently along um, party issues. Um, we also know that there are ways that we interpret polarization um, that are, are given to us by the media. We're taught that polarization um, is a more significant issue um, than perhaps ideologically it is on the ground. One example for that, um, I had to look up the statistic a couple times because I could hardly believe it. 2% of the voting population of the United States watches Fox News. 2%. 1% watches Rachel Maddow on a regular basis. You know, you like flip through the tape. But like regular watchers. How many people have heard that Fox News or Rachel Maddow is the reason that like the world is falling in around us, right? It's, um, and yet, that's, we, I think we've all heard that narrative when it's actually this very small percent. Um, so what's going on? Um, if we're not actually that ideologically, like if we get into the sort of like, what is the world um, that people imagine at the end of the day and what are the goods that we're seeking, what's actually happening? Um, I think one, um, one of the helpful pieces that's emerging in the literature and research around polarization um, is that people are beginning to see political parties not as ideological markers anymore. Um, these are not issue-based um, markers anymore. Political identities follow cultural and social constructions, and the most significant of those in the United States is race. The most significant is race. Um, and what that also means is that more and more people in the United States um, are participating in a form of co politics called affective politics. Affective politics, um, I am like the poster child of this, is that you vote against 
another candidate. You see a, a party or a person as a threat, not that you are giving yourself um, the uh, over, because, not because you align necessarily. Um, you may align with, uh, with a particular party or candidate, um, but really what, it, what influences us most is a sense of disgust about what is happening um, elsewhere in the political realm. So negative feelings, largely animosity, drive a lot of our electoral process these days, which accounts for why the ads that we see on TV are very happy to capitalize on our affective polarization. Um, this means that we're increasingly also acting and voting out of cultural and racial resentments and fears. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about um, kind of how we got to this point um, that we're at now um, in terms of understanding the history of polarization between two, having two different parties. I'm not going to go back too far. I'm going to start actually in um, the mid-20th century. This was the golden age of bipartisanship. Um, if you are looking for a time that the United States was not politically polarized, people are working across the aisle, there is Democrats and Republicans getting lots done, got tons of stuff done in this period in the 1950s. And what allowed that to happen is that the North abandons Reconstruction as a project which means that civil rights questions are moved to the margin. It's a time where there is a period of authoritarian rule over black people, the rise of Jim Crow, of lynching as a way to reestablish white dominance through white terror, segregation. In other words, depolarization occurs because the people empowered to make decisions were homogeneously white, and we're able to care about the same pro, um, progress for white people across the country. This allowed the electorate to have a shared form of ideological values. Um, in the, the American Political Science Association in 1950s, um, wrote a public letter to the people of the, the to the um, to these parties, asking them. Uh, to letting the, the public know that they were concerned because the Republican and Democratic parties were too similar and they didn't actually offer people an ideological choice. There's a ton of overlap um, between these parties. They're basically the same. Um, in particular, the Democratic Party um, uh, is, the, is the one who really shifts. There's, we, this is where we sort of see a shift happen um, in um, the sort of overlap of these parties. Uh, the Democratic Party, New Democratic Party, brings together an alliance of Northern liberals and working class trade unionists and Southern segregationists. That becomes um, the, the base of the Democratic Party. And all of this changes in the 1960s when the Democrats embrace the civil rights movement um, which leads to a multi-generational shift by the South towards the Republican Party. Um, we begin to see racial identity becomes an issue of party affiliation for the first time. Uh, this is called the Southern Strategy. 
that mobilizes white grievance and links the Republican Party to white identity. Um, the Great Migration takes place during this time, and the Democratic Party forfeits this place of dominance in the South in order to make a wider tent, serve as a, a strategic move into the future. Um, and then a couple other things occur. Uh, we have the emergence of the religious right, the feminist movement, um, and we see people separating more and more along ideological lines um, that become a part of their identity. Um, so this is important. When polarization becomes most extreme is during moments of substantial political and social upheaval when people who have been marginalized from power demand their right to be at the center um, of, of policy and of change. The most polarized period in the United States was during the Civil Rights Movement. The least polarized time in the United States was during the fail of Reconstruction and during the time of greatest repression to black people in, um, since the end of slavery. So we have this linking up that's happening of, of identity with party, um, more and more, people are identifying more with parties, um, especially racial identities. Um, and I think, you know, I've, I'm sure this is not something, I'm certainly not the first person to tell you this, but of course Donald Trump so helpfully displayed this for us. Um, Donald Trump was actually a very bad sort of classic conservative. Um, everybody said that from the very beginning. It played out throughout his presidency. But he was a great partisan, um, and, he, um, and that partisanship focused on racial identity. Um, and we saw this in election results that came back. In 2016, the American National Election Studies found that attitudes towards immigrants and black people and not economic anxieties were the best indicator if someone was going to vote for Donald Trump. And this actually, um, when they layered this information alongside of, um, the, of people of color for voted for Donald Trump, they saw the same thing replicated. Um, so one example that they gave is 15% um, of black adults, 38% of Latino adults, either said that they opposed Black Lives Matter or were noncommittal about it, and were about the same margins um, that, that voted for, for Donald Trump. I think one of the takeaways from this, uh, for me, was that often what, what we hear, I think especially in church context, is that the way out of polarization is to talk to one another through our differences. Um, and I think that all of this serves to help us see that we need much stronger medicine, much stronger medicine, um, to think about what's happening in our world, in, um, in my, for me, my church, um, which all of those are microcosms of what's happening in, in our, our world around us. I think I might have skipped a few slides. Let's see. Oh, no, I didn't. That's great. All right. So 
Um, let me just pause. Are there any, any questions or pushback, anything you all want to say? Okay. We're going to have questions at the end, too. But All right. Um, so I, I, this kind of second half together, um, I wanted to think through um, some of the myths of polarization that I hear in my world, that maybe you hear as well. Um, and I wanted to start with the first one, which is that polarization is caused by social media. We're in an echo chamber, political news we consume. Um, and if we could get exposure to new ideas and listening to others, we would burst those bubbles and be able to actually like really have conversation with each other. Just, has anybody heard this before? Is this a pretty, yeah. Okay, survey says, no, that's not right. Um, there is a really interesting study called the Boxel Study that looked at political polarization and how it's risen in the US electorate. Um, and what they found is that um, polarization actually decreased in some industrialized nations with similar social media diets to ours. It is not a given um, that social media use has to push people apart. It has, in many cases. Um, but there were also countries with even higher Facebook use than here in the US that also saw a decrease of polarization during their elections. Um, as, uh, and so whatever factor that is, it's not entirely clear that that's what's happening. Um, there was a, another study where Democrats and Republicans on Twitter were paid to follow people from the other party. Um, and here's what happened. The exposure made the Republicans more conservative and the Democrats more liberal. It just like reinforced like the things that they didn't like about each other. The only people who changed their mind were the people who didn't actually want to participate in the study. Um, so in other words, people who didn't have their minds made up or just were not invested politically. Um, almost every study we have shows that people don't change their mind or soften their beliefs if they already have a strong political opinion. Instead, um, people actively look for evidence to prove themselves right, even when they are presented with data, actual data, facts, if one will, that tell them that they are wrong. They will go, rather than believe those facts in the study, they will go out for data to prove themselves right. Um, we also have a tendency to overstate um, how pervasive social media use is. Um, Twitter, um, who was just blaming Twitter for, oh, um, Amy Coney Barrett was just blaming Twitter um, the other day. It's Twitter's fault that everybody's reacting to the Supreme Court. I wish she knew <laughs> that only 22% of people in the US are Twitter users and only 10% um, are actually active um, at posting on Twitter. 80% um, of content comes from those 10% of people. 
only a little less than half of people who use Twitter say they use it at all to talk about politics. They just post kitty memes, which I recommend you for your Twitter use, just kitty memes. Um, but these are also, so what is the, you know, why is Amy Coney Barrett talking about Twitter? Is because um, people who do use social media have a tendency to be the most invested financially and otherwise in partisan politics. Um, they're, they're the people who are going to get out and campaign for you. They're they're, this is the big money people who are going to um, give to your campaign. And so it actually matters to politicians that they listen to people who are expressing themselves loudly, even if it's a small percentage of people. But I, but I think most of what we know is that social media is not playing as big a factor um, in, in polarization than perhaps we've been led to believe. Um, polarization along political or ideological lines is the most significant division facing the church today. Has anybody heard that? Yeah, some people heard that. Um, I think one of the questions that we also need to be asking ourselves is, why have we decided that this is the most significant way to break up our world? Um, why, um, why this particular division? I think often in churches it's described as left and right, conservative, liberal, um, when there's all sorts of things to be worried about in our world right now. Um, like in this triangle, that 20% of, um, of us own 86% of the country's wealth. Um, and 80% of, uh, um, of us own 14% of the country's wealth. It's a huge economic disparity in our country. Um, and those people at the top are Democrats and Republicans, liberal and conservative. Um, um, we look at the, at the uh, on the right, I just put together some bubbles that just describe the, that there's a lot of diversity in the way that people actually manage their political identity um, in ways that don't always fit neatly into the sort of um, left-right polarity um, that we sort of assume is the natural narrative um, that we, but these, because of a variety of different factors, including media, these are the two sort of positions that become the most significant, um, even if they don't always map onto our own ideological places matching up with political identities. Um, we can also talk about another way to do this, and the chart at the bottom is political alignment by race. Um, we, we know that the vast majority of black people in this country said that the three top voting priorities for them were affordable housing, lowering healthcare costs, and reducing racism. Only one third were actually said that they were attached to the, to the Democratic Party. Um, but it, uh, roughly 95% of, of um, black voters vote for Democrats. Um, and this is in spite of the fact that about 50% of black voters uh, consider themselves in the camp that would um, restrict abortion access. 
Um, so there's all of this actual, um, like pretty significant interplay that's happening within these categories um, that's important for us to pay attention to if, if we wanna understand the, the country we live in and some of this conflict. Uh, next sort of myth of polarization, um, moderates and centrists are best hope for depolarization. Some of you heard that one before? No? Um, and I think the, the question, there's the maybe philosophical, theological question behind, this, behind that assumption is, why have we cultivated the civil, open, compromising, and rational as virtues? Um, because all of these virtues have a history to them. Um, and one of the, <laughs> the, one of the worst things that you can be called right now is tribal, right? Have you been like, this is tribal politics. Um, I was reading a book by Rowan Williams recently where, he's, where he says, um, the very word tribalism tells a story about the demeaning of mar and marginalizing of cultures that we call tribal. Don't really think about what we mean when we use the language of tribalism. It's actually um, that there's an expectation of normative behavior and beliefs against which everything else is defined. Um, everything else that doesn't fit into this idea of what is what is civil, what is rational, what is compromising, um, is doomed and deviant. So we have the rational enlightened group. Um, and everyone else who would not conform um, was made extinct. Um, I also just want to offer us a caution that the language of civility often means to be stripped of anger. It's a willingness to hear all sides, to remove emotion and self-participation from the discussion, which is very easy to do when you are going to do well no matter how this issue plays out. Um, so we need, I think, to begin to ask what we're asking of people who have everything on the line when these types of questions and political debates come up. Um, one of the most uh, damaging tropes that has come out of the um, civility conversation is, is of an angry black woman, right? Um, that there is this sense of um, irrational anger that presents itself when really we could just have this dialogue together um, and sort of remove ourselves from, from this conversation. Um, I think we often find ourselves sort of descending into what is actually a fictive uh, centrism. Um, uh, if we are um, thinking about centrism as a middle ground, um, I think we're actually deceiving ourselves. Centrism is, is, is just another form of politics. It's another, it's another one of these bubbles. Um, and uh, because we often <laughs> find that uh, there's a, there's a particular kind of paternalizing that happens when people take a position on one end or the other. Um, and a lot of these kind of words that we sort of associate with virtue um, are embedded in that. 
the next one is that our goal as a church or community should be to cultivate a wide range of political ideologies in our churches. Um, I am told all the time that this is a virtuous thing to do. Have you, have you, some of you heard this as well? Um, people bearing together through their differences, profound differences together, able to worship together, celebrate around God's table. Um, and I, I sort of bring this back to this question that we asked in, the, the, in chapel today, which is, what do we think church is for? I think is the question that emerges for us behind that question of, wow, we just want a lot of diversity and ideological and political diversity. Um, and so I want to bring us back to this idea of the hush harbors, um, where we saw um, that it led to several prominent slave rebellions um, and eventually were made illegal because of the um, radical nature of what was happening at these secret meetings of um, worship outside of the eye of white slavers. Um, I think hush harbors are helpful for us because they shift us from congregations as places where people learn to sustain disagreement and into a different kind of place where church is actually sanctuary and rest for people who live lives where they are battered and harmed outside of the church. That's what a sanctuary is. You come to a sanctuary as a place to be safe because out there is not safe. Um, and I think this is actually the story of the New Testament, uh, of people who are joining together again, um, across social and economic divisions, um, but where people of, um, who are uh, the, at the center of power move their lives over to those who are the most marginal in their community. Um, I think we also, um, when we're in this sort of conversation about the way unity happens in diversity in our churches, we need to just give ourselves the reality check that not everyone bears the burden of unity and diversity in the same way in our congregations. I think we have a tendency to overlook the role of power in congregational life. Um, and if some people have the power to enact harm on others, that, uh, that changes the dynamics of how people can relate to each other in congregational life. If we're talking not about ideological positions, but racial identities in which political difference all, often flows in the wake, then we need to be mindful of what we are actually cultivating by encouraging um, a sort of sense of um, uh, that, that the best thing that we can do is, is to put this, um, is to aim for political diversity in our congregations. Um, I would say this is like a half myth, maybe. <laughs> but, um, that our unity in Christ is greater than our political difference. And we can just leave those differences at the door. Um, just all the things that separate us stay out there. We come into worship and then you know, we go back into the world. Um, and one of the questions that's behind that, uh, that, that we need to ask ourselves is, what does it mean for something to be political? <laughs> um, 
Have we limited ourselves in our imagination of, of, what, of what is a politic? Um, because everything in our lives is political. Um, what we eat and drive, where we work, where our children go to school. We have a politics of our corporate life together in congregations. Uh, and this not only diverges from, but also intersects with forms of politics beyond the church. Right? We, we can't cut ourselves off from who we are when we walk into the door of our congregations. And that's because we're here to we, we're whole people. <laughs> um, and what we want to do is live these daily lives that are reflections of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I want to just uh, finish up by shifting our focus a little bit to um, what it will mean for us to take seriously that um, political identities are more and more being attached to racial identities, uh, and that what we're talking about when we bring our political identities into church is that we're also bringing racial identities into church. The bad news um, is that if your church is politically polarized, it is very, un very difficult to unlock people from these positions um, through exposure to new ideas, friendship, different media, We've sort of heard that now, right, in, in a lot of the work that's already been done. It's very hard. Um, um, I recently heard someone say that you, we can't out-fact each other, right? Like, you've tried this before, you tried to out-fact somebody. Um, but in, in what we do know is that people are slightly more likely to believe your facts if you have a personal emotive story they're invested in which makes it really hard um, because then you aren't really working with facts anymore. <laughs> You're dealing with people's stories and who has the better story is the person who wins. Um, and that's a really complicated place for us to be um, in, in congregational life and political life. Um, there are a few studies that seem to suggest that we can decrease stereotypes among people from other political parties. Um, but because polarization is, again, linked to identities, all of these strategies have a tendency to be just ineffective. Um, and even if you decrease affective polarization, um, it doesn't mean that people are actually going to be able to get on the same page for the work of the church, right? Those are sort of two different things. But I think what this does offer us it's just the freedom to not be as concerned about this anymore. Um, if we know that we can't um, use facts to talk each other out of the positions that we're in, it allows us to focus our energy in other directions. Um, and, one of, and I think there's a few things that I'm sort of grappling with right now about what that might mean. Um, and one of those may be that the church as we know it may not survive. Um, that may be the reality of what it means to take seriously um, the work of proclamation that is difficult and full, filled with conflict. Um, and that's, I think that's something that we all, especially those of us um, who are pastors and churches, are going to have to wrestle with. But a way that we can continue that work ahead um, is to create 
and cultivate communities of discernment um, that are refuge for people who've been pushed to the margins of power. Um, and creating space for us to do healthy conflict together um, instead of pushing these questions to the side because we're afraid we'll lose members or we're afraid we'll lose um, finances or friends or family members. Um, but I think the most significant for us, especially those of us in the majority white church, is we, we need to start taking seriously deconstructing white identity politics. Um, we need to be able to talk beyond left-right language to identify the way that white racial identity is under threat and is currently shaping our understanding of our place in the world. So I'm telling Peter about this book I've been reading recently, um, Ashley Jordina, who explains that um, this, is, this sort of desire to maintain um, uh, a firm place of white identity in the world is actually different than racial animosity, um, which is interesting and kind of scary, because I think that we, um, we want to say that people who want to who are concerned about white people no longer being um, the, the dominant power players of our world must also experience racial animosity. And she said that's not necessarily true. Um, we, we are instead talking about white people who want to protect white social and economic dominance and how especially immigration and the browning of this country threatens that hierarchy. I think that more than overcoming polarization, that the number one um, piece of work for the majority white church today is helping people feel uncomfortable with this form of identity helping people, white people in our communities, feel uncomfortable with the idea of um, connecting white racial identity to their politics. Um, that's uh, so where I am going um, with church life and with thinking through um, what it means to be um, a person of faith and a leader of the church at this time of um, pretty intense division in our world. And, um, yeah, Peter, do you want to lead us in some questions, if there are any? Well, thank you very much, Melissa. Um, I'm sure that you, a lot of you probably have as many thoughts and questions going through your head as I do. We've got some time now for questions, uh, Melissa has graciously agreed to open up this space. Because uh, it's being recorded and because it's on Facebook Live, uh, I'm gonna need you to use the mic. So if you have a question, just raise your hand and I will bring the mic to you. Philip has a question.
Hi, my name is Philip, and uh, I just want to say first off, I really enjoyed your presentation and your talk. I think that um, your takeaways are really important for all of us to hear. Um, and something that I have a question about is, I think that relating across difference is really important in this work that you're describing, but it seems like a lot of the presentation was about how it's really difficult to actually relate across that difference and have it be meaningful and impactful, especially something that struck me were, were the social media numbers and how actually breaking out of those um, echo chambers, as we call them, polarizes people even more. So how do we work through that and make sure that we are relating across difference, if for no other reason than to um, like make more people aware and committed to this new idea of what the church should be? Yeah, I, you know, I, um, I wish there was a more hopeful answer to that than I think sort of what you laid out, which is we're just, we just find it's very difficult to, um, we, we can create empathy with people that can understand our position, we can understand theirs. Um, but again, um, I think maybe this is the question is, what's the goal? Like, is it to say that, um, we can live without killing each other, right? That seems important. I am for that. Um, and uh, being able to reckon with difference in a way that allows us to um, live without violence is, is significant. And, and I think things like, like, like you said, empathy exercises where people attach stories to, um, I, I know there, there was another study where they were trying to get people to change their mind about abortion. And telling stories um, was the only thing that had any effect on changing people's mind. And it also took like sometimes four or five conversations. Um, and, and, it, and it was still a pretty small margin of what, um, what was able to sort of happen. Um, I think, again, in terms of like, what is it that we actually want? Um, do we want to start building the world that we want to see? Um, a world that sets people free from needing to feel the anxiety about the loss of their white identity and to welcome them into something that's not built on scarcity? Um, because my experience is that um, if, uh, this is, I almost said, if you build it, they will come, um, which I feel embarrassed that that came to my mind um, and I said it out loud. But it's kind of true. Um, like people want to be, um, if they if they see that something good is happening, um, and and it, maybe it's not as scary to like to live with to live with in a majority black brown um, country. Like maybe there is actually enough here for all of us. How can we start living that out now instead of just trying to convince people to, to help us along the way? Um, I've just realized, and maybe other people are better at this than me. It doesn't seem like it from the data, but, um, but I think my work, um, I realized, um, is just to start building the world we want to live in um, with the people who want to do that um, and recognizing that when, when people are exhausted um, from from how hard it is to live with um, a sense of anger and fear, um, especially racialized, that maybe, maybe they'll want to join up.
Hi, Laura Slater-Jost. Uh, I highly recommend Melissa's book. Uh, one of the things that I uh, really took away from it was the idea of how we align our solidarities uh, and um, how we figure out the way to do that through the power analysis. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could speak at all to how we do the power analysis and align our solidarities. Um, it's good to see you, Laura. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, this is, I think, a, a power is um, kind of a, a dirty word in churches, but really, like one of the really bad words in, in Mennonite churches, I, in my experience. Um, makes people nervous, right? Um, I think we, we, have, we have a tendency to attach a lot of negative words to power. Um, I am a part of a form of um, organizing where power is neutral. It's, um, it isn't good or bad. It's just from the word poder, to do. Um, it allows you to do things in the world. Um, and so power is the sort of thing that we have to pay attention to where it um, is accumulating itself, who has access to it, um, and make sure it's fairly distributed and, and, um, and that the people who haven't had a voice have access to that power. Um, and that process is power analysis. Um, and you don't have to call it that in your church. You can kind of come up with a churchier word. It's probably a better idea. I'll try to think of something. Um, uh, discerning together our, the possibilities for God's reign among us. Yeah? Is that good? Yeah, Nate? Okay, too wordy. Um, yeah, so, so looking for, for um, so recognizing that power just doesn't happen out there, right? It happens in here, in church as well. And oftentimes we're simply replicating structures of power out there in here. Who has the most money? is the person who serves on the trustees committee and has the most say over what happens to the building and who has access to it, right? Like we see this play out all the time in, in congregational life. Um, and so beginning that power analysis with our, our own processes and bylaws is, is a really good place to start, even though it sounds kind of boring. I'll ask a question. So one of the things I really like Melissa is um, how seriously you take church. Like when I read you and hear you, it always seems like you really believe in church as a place that can be a refuge, a world that we can build. And I do too. I'm trying my best, anyhow. Uh, but I spend five days a week at a university, which is a different kind of animal. And we argue a lot here about how different of an animal it is. Um, but it's not, so my church is pretty, is not ideologically polarized. It's, it's one ideology. My classroom, I think, is. And now my students turn around looking at me. I ask my students to come here. And so I'm wondering, and so my kind of default, which you have, which I'm always anxious about, and you have me more anxious about, is this sort of open, civil, rational, 
compromising discourse that here in a university, in a classroom where we probably are polarized, that is our best option. And now I actually, Friday my philosophy students are reading that New Yorker article about why facts don't change our minds. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder what, what advice you have for us in our classrooms as opposed to in our churches or, I'll just leave it at that. That's, uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do think it, I don't know if this would help, but I wonder if it's actually, if there is something about at least beginning to name um, that in, in the university setting where this is sort of what's available to us, um, the, the costliness of that, to, to, that this will be costly to people in the room, to some people in the room in ways it won't be to others. Um, um, and I don't know, maybe that's where we begin, is just naming that um, what's been handed to us in, in institutional settings, in academic settings, um, is bound up in the narrative of civility um, and exchange of ideas. Um, and I, I do think that so much activism on campus comes from, from a recognition that, that, that something is amiss with that. Um, that there, there's a, there's another, another side to that. And yeah, um, I, I'm probably just, just affirming that that, um, <laughs> that I recognize that and, and I do think that campus activism is the place that that, where that builds up to a place where there's demands of change from students um, and how to get ahead of that just feels really hard. Just so you know, Peter, uh, we go to the same church and uh, just recently someone who attends our church uh, posted online a, a happy moderates uh, meme about how uh, she sometimes votes with Democrats and sometimes votes with Republicans. Uh, so I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. Any other questions for Melissa? Tim. While you're walking to Tim, this is sort of related to that, that meme. I actually think, you know, I don't know if you have experienced this, but it does feel like sometimes we lose some specificity and like that meme, I think the question is like, which policies, right? Which policies, um, which ideologies do you agree with? Like there's, I think we give, sort of give each other a pass on this like, oh, well, you know, we have Republicans and Democrats or we're all, we're all Democrats in our congregation. They're like white Democrats actually score pretty low compared to, um, other racial groups in terms of racial equality, even within the Democratic Party, right? So, so even like getting into the specificity and not letting these sort of broad labels sort of absorb um, what it is that we actually sort of need to figure out together. Hey, Tim. Melissa, thanks so much. Um, uh, really appreciated the insights that you were sharing. And from the very beginning, you know, this this word polarization is just what it automatically brings to our minds and um, the anxieties, the different kinds of anxieties that, 
that it seems we just try to hide or run from um, that lead to these sorts of um, relationships uh, that we experience. Um, one of those words that we seem to get polarized, polarized um, in, in this context anyway, is freedom. And it's something I, I really appreciate having conversations with my students about. Um, you know, what, what, do we, what do we mean by this? And something you said at the very end, really, I'm, I'm really reflecting on, I think I'm gonna keep reflecting on, but you said something about, you used the word freedom in the sense of a freedom not to be as concerned about this. Hmm. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more, yeah, that, that seems really important. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that kind of freedom. Hmm. Yeah. Um, because I've been told this is the thing that I need to worry about, it has been the thing that I've worried about. Um, and, and I don't think I ever took a step back until sort of this opportunity to sort of ask this question a little bit more broadly came up to say, what, why am I being asked to put my attention here in this particular place? Um, what is the thing we're actually talking about? Um, and so um, when we're, to, we're talking about the freedom to, to, to think about what are the other, what are actually perhaps the more pressing questions for us than talking across difference, um, at least this particular kind of difference. Um, what, um, what, are we, what, is, what are our Im imaginations freed up to do when the idea of helping people get along across Republican and Democratic boundaries um, is, not, is not the thing that we, we have been, that we're, we take because it's the thing that's been handed to us. Um, and I think there is something about freeing up our imaginations that's really powerful right now um, and uh, is really fruitful for us. So I don't know if that helps a little bit. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, this gives power. That's like another form of power saying, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna concern myself with this. Um, yeah, thanks. So I'm Marcy Frederick. I've had two or three opportunities to again. hear from you already know, today. like best friends um, now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about two things. I, I think they're related. So, so one of them is you mentioned scarcity but also who benefits from polarization? Yeah. And how those things might be related. Yeah. Um, as distraction from other things, um, people in power benefit from polarization. Um, and um, can you say that first question again? I'm sorry, I was like focused on that one. I guess what I'm wondering is, when I think about who I hear about scarcity from, yes. mm -hmm. it's people in power. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, and this is, you know, this is sort of like the thesis of how to have an enemy um, is um, we are actually locked into 
systems of oppression that are mutually harmful for everyone involved. Um, so um, in conversations about polarization, it's really the who's right and the who's wrong um, doesn't, is significant, but as significant as the question of um, how is actually our participation in, um, in white identity politics can actually harmful for also for white people, harmful for people of color, harmful for white people, get us caught up into, um, again, uh, like uh, competition for resources. Um, uh, we, we see this all the time with climate change, right? Well, the economy just can't accommodate um, any sorts of like major shifts um, that are gonna happen in order to prevent climate catastrophe. It just can't happen, right? Like this is, this is the narrative we hear over and over again. Um, and so, again, this sort of sense of how to, like freeing up our imaginations um, to begin to build something else um, because it's also not good to, to live um, the kind of life where you harm other people, right? It's, um, we recognize um, that's what it means to love your enemy, is to want them and yourself to be removed from this, this um, mutually, um, mutually ingrained harm to one another. Hi, Melissa. My name's Kevin. Um, one of the things I really like about your talk is just when you were going through the different myths of polarization and sort of naming them. And at the end, I think I, one thing I'm taking away is right, we ha we're, we're, we're naming the wrong problem, polarization, and then we, then we have this like bad solution for it, which is like civil discourse, something like that. So I think I'm really convinced by that at the end. But what I'm trying to figure out is like then if polarization is not the problem and civil discourse is not like the great answer, kind of um, what is the, the problem that we should be focused on? And, and so I'm listening for that as you're talking about it. And it's something like, like learning how to connect with people outside of a kind of buried, affective sense of whiteness. Like this mm -hmm. is how I'm thinking about it for me as a white person. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if you could just say more, like if it's not polarization and and civil discourse, then what do you think is the problem we should be focused on and then like the solution for that that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there, you know, we, what we're really talking about is ident that um, is partisan sorting is what we're seeing more of nowadays, right? Um, so I, I recently read Bill Clinton's like immigration policy and it was Donald Trump could have written that thing. Like it was, I was like, what? Um, but I was not really old enough to like really pay attention to Bill Clinton. So, um, but it's just amazing how we have like this sort of sense of the way that identities have hooked up as, as partisanship is sorting itself among um, Democrats and Republicans in particular. Um, because we have, they have done the great, a great job of helping us to actually think about our identity, right? Our social identity, like where, who do you vote for if you're rural, right? Part of your rural identity is voting for Republicans. Who are you if you're an urban dweller? Part of your urban identity is voting for Democrats, right? But 
again, I think the most significant of those identities that we carry is a racialized identity. Um, and that, that has been, um, that is part of the formation of these, of mo the modern parties that we have today and still operates deeply within our parties. So recognizing and being able to help us to deconstruct white identity politics in ourselves, in our communities, in the way that we do, um, do we do politics, um, to be able to sort of say, if our commitment is to, to Jesus Christ and the good news of, um, of the gospel, then we need to shift the way that we are thinking about the anxieties that come along with our political identities. Um, so I think actually attention to racial identity, um, I, again, I don't, it won't solve polarization, but, what, but I do think it is the more significant question before us. Does that help? Uh, so a question came in on Facebook. Um, Jennifer kindly showed me. Um, the question here is, I agree that polarization is a symptom, not a cause of our current challenges, but if the primary causes, causes are classism, racism, and sexism, how might the church address these evils both internally and externally? Yeah, I mean, I, something that you know, I think has been helpful for me is shifting to um, I, our, our church as a, as a place of sanctuary. What does it mean? Um, how do we let that be what drives what, how we identify ourselves and our community? How are we paying attention to in our local community, in our neighborhoods? Who are the people who have who have been who've been sort of stuck at the bottom of the system and how can we make our churches a place that honors them um, again that sort of language from paul the most the most dishonored parts we clothe with honor um, and so one example for this is like we have a, um, a lot of lgbtq people in my church a lot of people who have been deeply wounded um, and harmed in other places and it is a part of our church community and identity to make our place um, a sacred and safe place for those people to heal from that trauma. That's a part of who we are. I'm not gonna debate LGBTQ questions. Um, anybody stands up during sharing time, says something that would hurt somebody in our LGBT community, I will have a conversation with them. <laughs> um, this, is a, this is a commitment that we've made to make sure that we have formed a community where everything else out there is, um, get it, is that in North Carolina, you could be fired for being queer. Out there is bullying and harassment. Just happened to a, a gay couple at our church. Um, got called the F word. So they were holding hands walking down the street. And the place that he came to feel safe and the person that he wanted to tell was me. That's what it means to be sanctuary. Um, and that, I, I think, is what Jesus wants for us. Um, how are we sanctuary to Haitian immigrants who the Biden administration is putting on planes right now? Um, how are we sanctuary to people who 
uh, are experiencing devastating violence because they're black at the hands of police. So these are the questions that I think need to animate the life of the church right now. Not how can we get along? How can we cross, talk across the divide? It's too much work. It's too much on the line. Is that good? Okay. Yeah. All right. um, Melissa, thank you very much.